Well, good afternoon. I am Reed Jolly. Lisa and I have been here for a couple of years, joined officially last summer. But uh, we went on vacation. We went backpacking in the Grand Canyon, came back, and were utterly shocked at how different things were around here. Joshua got a haircut, huh? And Kyle danced in his sermon last week. So those of you who weren't here, go watch it on uh, on YouTube. It, it, he's got that guy's got moves, but. Uh, it's great to be back. Uh, thank you, if, those of you who laughed at my little jokes. Thank you for that. Uh, we are eight weeks into a series of sermons that are, uh, the title is The Stories We Live By. And we're looking at primarily First and Second Samuel and looking at different individuals. And last week we looked at the Ark of God and we're seeing the stories that give shape to our lives. What a great series it's been. And I, I just want to say publicly before you and before the Lord, uh, thank you to our preachers, and Kyle, uh, appreciate your preaching so much, and Joshua, uh, God's anointed you both, and we are well-fed sheep. Matter of fact, I'm getting spiritually fat around here. But uh, we come in, in our eighth week, and we're going to look at 2 Samuel 7. Is your Bible open? If it isn't, uh, find that real quickly or find it on your phone. Uh, this chapter describes God's covenant with David. Uh, if I were to pass out a piece of paper to everyone here and said, well, why don't you write down your top three or four or five, six uh, uh, monumental events in the Old Testament, you would write down some things like, well, Elijah called down fire from heaven, and, and uh, there was the parting of the Red Sea and the Tower of Babel and the flood, and those are the big events of the Old Testament, and many others. You know, Balaam talked to his donkey. That probably wouldn't make anyone's list, but it's pretty big. Well... 2 Samuel 7 is a big deal. It should be on anyone's list of the top 10, and maybe it should be on our list as number one. Rightly understood, this chapter gives the whole Bible a unity and a coherence that we don't find anywhere else. Now, 2 Samuel 7 is the middle of the teeter-totter. The whole Bible kind of goes back and forth on this chapter. It's the high summit. It's the continental divide, the watershed moment of all scripture. And the passage, personally, rightly understood, will give our lives coherence and meaning. <clears throat> the passage will sustain us, you and me, in our darkest moments, and it will encourage us when we see hopelessness as our, our closest companion. Now, Go back to the Bible times in the first century. The, the Greco-Roman world uh, really had given up on hope. Uh, as one historian said, the gods of the Romans and the Greeks were tired. They were failing. Their cultures were descending into chaos, fracturing, falling apart. I mean, if you want to get a feel for it, just think of the Roman appetite for the macabre. They, they saw it as entertaining to go watch gladiators kill themselves. Uh, their pornography was prolific and disgusting. Life had no meaning. Suicide was thought to be a noble way to die. Epicurus, one of the ancient philosophers, said, death is nothing to us. We just die. We become non-entities, the way we would say it. And it's said that the most popular epitaph on gravestones was this. I was not. I was. I am not. I do not care. Utter cynicism. 
Now, I don't know if that sounds familiar in our own time, but it should. We are a people, by and large, who has forsaken God, and life increasingly is understood to be very meaningless, and we are introspective and self-absorbed. You, you can see this when you travel. I saw it on our trip, that the bumper sticker that says, I'm spending my kid's inheritance. And we laugh at that a little bit, but you think about it. It's, it's a, a, a moniker that says, there's no hope for the future. I'm just going to spend it now. Or over the last four decades in American life, we're spending our grandkids' money on ourselves. Or maybe the cynicism about the institution of marriage. People are marrying much uh, in much more seldom manner, and when they do bother to get married, uh, they're not troubling themselves to have children. You know, in our time, from relative to 1960, the birth rate is about 50% of what it was. Why invest in the future if this life is all there is? Well, 2 Samuel 7 speaks to our malaise, to the doldrums of life, to the, the haunting fear that life is just one thing after another. The chapter speaks on the one hand to the heart of God, but then it also speaks to our heart. And if you look at verse 1, uh, it, it, it's a great way to start a story. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, David says to his buddy and his prophet Nathan, he says, hey, how about we build God a temple, a house? Nathan says, essentially, let's do it. Now, David is acting like a temple, uh, typical ancient Near Eastern king. Kings in that era loved to build temples for their gods. And that was a way to bolster and increase their power, to bring the power of God to their own locality. So David, in a sense, is asking, uh, acting like that. The backdrop for this moment uh, comes from three different things. One is there's a time of peace. The, the long civil war between the house of Saul and the house of David has come to an end. David has moved to Jerusalem. Uh, he's been in Hebron for seven years as king, but now he has consolidated the 12 tribes of Israel. He goes and takes Jerusalem, which is the place to be if you want to be a king. Uh, that's that's the, Every trade route is going to go right through Jerusalem. It's a great place to be to unify the northern and the southern tribes of Israel. And thirdly, we looked at this last week, the ark has come to Jerusalem. Which is to say, the presence of God and the presence of the king have become one. They've been fused together. So it was the best of times, but David ponders, he says, something's not right here. I've got a house in Hope Ranch, and God is living in a tent. And that night, God comes to Nathan, and he speaks. And God says to Nathan, and he says to David, and God's holy word says to us, something that will blow our puny little minds if we open them and let it sink in. Something that will give meaning to our lives right now in 2021. Now, I've got a few words today, but I, I want to vector this all down to one simple point, and it is this, that God's promise to David gave meaning to David's life and God's promise to David will give meaning to our lives if we receive it. This moment is when the whole story of the Bible and the whole story of world history and the whole story of your 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 plus years comes together and has meaning. 
So two questions, real briefly. What does God do, and what does God say? What God does is he makes a covenant with David. Don't miss that concept. God makes a covenant with David. Now, you, if you listen to Holly read, you might say, wait a minute, Reed, I, I never heard the word covenant in the passage. It's not there. You're right. Good. I'm glad you were perceptive about that. But Psalm 89 and Psalm 132 actually quote this passage and refer to this moment as God's covenant with David. So it is a covenant, and you might be asking, well, what the heck is a covenant? Well, in our time, we sign contracts, we shake hands, we make promises. But in the ancient Near East, you cut a covenant. What? Yeah. When two individuals or two groups of people or two nations wanted to make an agreement, they literally would take animals, cut them in half, and walk between them, as if to say, if I break my promise to you, may I become to you as these animals are to us. In other words, you can cut me in half if I mess up on this. Usually the, that, that covenant was cut between a weaker and a stronger nation. The stronger nation would promise protection, and the weaker nation would promise loyalty. So in the Bible, we have this overarching covenant of grace but there are smaller covenants along the way. After the flood, God makes a covenant with Noah, and there are blood sacrifices involved. God makes at least two covenants with Abram or Abraham, and each time there is blood involved. God makes a covenant with the nation of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai, and there is blood involved. Second Samuel chapter 7 is the climax of, of the Old Testament covenant of grace. All the other covenants of the Old Testament look to this moment when God makes his covenant with David. So what does God do? He makes a covenant with David. What does God say? Well, God makes three astounding statements to David through Nathan the prophet. Number one, he says, I am comfortable in a tent. What? It's in the text. Look at verse 5 to 7. You want to build me a house, God says? I haven't lived in a house since I took you out of Egypt. But I've been moving about in a tent as my dwelling. Furthermore, when you got to the land of Israel, during all those centuries of the judges, God says, did I ever ask you for a house? I'm comfortable in a tent. Church. We learn about the character and the heart of God right here. God is a God who comes to us. And he dwells with us. He condescends to our level. He stoops in order to save. It is God who comes to Adam and Eve as they are hiding in the garden. It is God who comes to Abram in Ur as he's worshiping the moon. It is God who meets Moses in the burning bush as he's comfortable in his retirement. And if you know Christ this afternoon, well, what did Jesus say? You didn't seek me, but I sought you. I came to you. I love the story of C.S. Lewis. He was a hardened atheist when he was 31 years old in Oxford, England, 1929. He said God closed in on him and he gave his life to Christ. 
He says, I bowed and prayed the most reluctant convert in all of England. <laughs> he says, did I search, search for God? He says, you might as well talk about the mouse searching for the cat. No, God is a God who comes to us. We do not worship a cold, static, uncaring, distant God. We worship the God who deigns to come to us in a tent. And the word became flesh and tented among us. And we have beheld his glory. Astounding statement number two comes in verses 8 to 11. God says, I will make you <laughs> a house. I mean, there has to be a little humor in this passage. Starts out with great King David saying, I want to make God a house. And God says, I'm going to make you a house. Now, David is king. Everything at this moment is going splendidly. He's fought and won many battles. He has the loyalty of the tribes of Israel. Things couldn't be going better, but it would appear that the success on the outside is seeping into the pores of his heart and pride is starting to come out from the inside. And God says, you know, I don't need any house that you could build me. In fact, God says, I have made you everything you are. We just heard this. I took you from the pasture. I made you a prince. I've been with you. I cut off your enemies. Now look at your Bibles. Look at verse 9. Look at the tense change in verse 9. God says, I've done all these things. I did it. But David, we're just getting started. You will not believe what I am going to do. I will make for you a great name like the great ones of the earth. I will plant my people Israel. I will keep violent men away. I will give you rest from your enemies. And look at the big one, the second half of verse 11. So important. God says, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Wow. <laughs> I'm going to make you a house, God says. Now, think about the whole passage again. David is growing comfortable in Jerusalem. It's about time I make a nice house for God, as nice as my house. And God gently rebukes David. And he says, you don't get it, David. Everything you have and everything you are is a gift from me. How little David knew... And how little we know when we think that we can add to the glory of God. Or if we think that we can add to God's sovereign purposes. One of the great joys of the Christian life is when we finally understand that God, the God whom we worship, doesn't need anything from us. He is sovereign. His purposes will be accomplished. His purposes will stand. And if we don't worship him, well, you remember when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem in the last week of his life? Do you remember? All the crowds are extolling his praises and they're saying, well, Hosanna, this is, this, is, this is him. And the Pharisees say to Jesus, could you quiet them down? I, I paraphrase. Jesus says, essentially, what difference would it make? If I did, the stones would cry out and praise me. Do you see the freedom there? 
The God we worship doesn't need us. Friends, everything we do for God, the obedience of holiness, the discipline of stewardship, the practice of costly hospitality, serving our church, doing missions here and abroad, get this, everything, everything, everything that we do for God is a joyful response to what he has already done for us in Christ. We say amen to that? Well, God says in the second half of verse 11, I will make you a house. Now that word house in Hebrew does triple duty. It's a word for palace. It's the word for temple. And it's also the word for dynasty. David says, I want to make you a house. God says, I am going to build you a house. So I'm comfortable in a tent. I built build you a house. I will build you a house. And thirdly, God says, I will establish your throne forever. Could you indulge me a little bit and just say that one word forever? Good, good, good. In our passage, three times that word forever comes up. In the following verses, it comes up another five times. So let's do a little math, children. Second children's sermon. Three plus five is eight. Good. Eight times, eight times in our little section of scripture, God says, this is a forever promise. Now, I took a year of Hebrew in seminary, and I got a B. I'm proud of that B. So at the end of the year, I sold my books because I realized that I was not going to know any more Hebrew than anybody else that's never looked at Hebrew. But I remember one thing from my year of Hebrew. I, all those hours of study, there's only one thing I remember. You want to know what it is? Of course you do. The word forever in Hebrew means forever. God says, I am going to build this house forever. Well, did it last forever? Boy, it lasted a long time. Uh, we're talking about David's house, his dynasty. And the, this is amazing. I just learned this this week. The Davidic dynasty lasted longer than any other dynasty in the ancient Near East. Longer than any Egyptian dynasty, longer than any Hittite dynasty, or Assyrian dynasty, or Babylonian dynasty. The Davidic dynasty lasted over 400 years. That's pretty good, isn't it? Longer than the Stuarts in England. Wow. Or the Windsors. 400 years? Is that the same thing as forever? In fact, after those 400 years were over, not only was there no king on the throne, the people of Israel were deported about a thousand miles away to Babylon. Not only did they not have a king, they didn't have land. Forever. And you know, for the next 600 years, there was no king on the throne of David. Do you think the Jews at that moment wondered if God was faithful to his promises. And they go off to exile, they come back, and they're continually under the rule of foreign powers, and they hate them. And they come back really to chaos. It, do you think they wondered if God was faithful to his promise? 
Many of us this afternoon are wondering the same thing. We're not so concerned about our promise keeping, we're wondering about God's promise keeping. And many of our friends wonder the same thing. Lisa and I have been friends with a couple that do not live in Santa Barbara, have never lived in Santa Barbara, but they've faithfully served the Lord for about 40 years in their marriage. And you might think in that service, it would be a great reward and everything would be wonderful. And it's not. One of their three children is rebelling against not only them, but the Lord himself and against the other siblings in the family. And all that they remember is called, is called into question at this moment in their lives. Is God faithful to his promises? Now, many of us here this afternoon are, are friends with Phil Becu. Phil is one of those very athletic guys. I guess he's kind of a world-class volleyball player and just a great guy. And his business is going well and he loves his wife and kids. And just a few weeks ago, Phil realizes something's going on and he has a tumor and it's cancer. And he's gone through his first treatment of chemo that his body wasn't reacting to and, and there needs to be surgery and he has to see the doctor tomorrow and we should be praying for him. But lo and behold, his wife has stage four cancer. Do you think there's room in that to kind of wonder a little bit if God is faithful to his promises? As COVID-19 winds its way down, some of us this afternoon wonder if we will have a job. Is God faithful to his promises? Some of us have lost a spouse recently, and life is a trying and lonely adventure. Is God faithful to his promises? Others in this congregation yearn for marriage, and the years are ticking by. And we wonder, is God faithful to his promises? Uh, many of us, maybe all of us, are looking at the political landscape, the cultural landscape, the moral landscape, and we find ourselves in a world that is so unlike that of the world we lived in just a few years ago, and we ask, is God faithful to his promises? As we see riots in the streets, we're concerned about racism, we wonder about hyperinflation in the future. As we groan over the perverse sex education in our public schools that begins at kindergarten, we kind of wonder, can the center hold? Is God faithful to his promises? God says forever. And Israel only got 400 years. Now listen carefully just for one minute here. This passage does what many Old Testament prophetic passages do. It takes an extended telescope looking at the future and collapses it down so that the future looks like one event. Kind of like if you're driving to the Rocky Mountains from the east across the plains of Colorado and you look at the Rocky Mountains and your kids say, are we there yet? And you say, no, we're not there yet, but look, there's, there are the mountains. And you drive for hour after hour and you finally get there and what do you see? You see a foothill. And then you see a bigger hill, and then you see a bigger hill still, and then you see a, the front range, and then you finally see the massive 14,000 foot peaks in Colorado. 
In other words, from a distance, it all looks like a single mountain range. But when you get there, there are multiple fulfillments of the children's question, are we there yet? So in these verses, on the one hand, Solomon is the fulfillment of the promise. You're going to have a son. He's going to build me a house. But on the other hand, he's going to sit on the throne forever. No, really only for 400 years. And when we read through the Old Testament, through the prophets, through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the book of the 12, the 12 minor prophets, we see them struggling with this, this sense that David's throne is empty, but God keeps promising that one day that throne will be occupied by a new and greater and final David. There's a yearning and a longing and a promise of a greater David yet to come in the future. The prophets say, God's going to judge you for your idolatry, but that's not the end. David is going to come and reign, and God will be faithful to his promise. Is God faithful to his promise? And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and will give birth to a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So Jesus grows up to be about 30. And when he does a miracle or when people want a miracle, they say, son of David. You, you remember the story in Matthew 12 where a man who is, according to the ESV, he is demon oppressed so that he can neither see nor speak. Jesus heals him so that he can speak and see. And the crowds watch this miracle. Do you remember what they said? Could this be the son of David? Church, that is the fundamental question that every one of us has to ask this afternoon. Could this be the son of David? If Jesus is the son of David, if he is the fulfillment of God's covenant with King David, if we come to him in faith for the forgiveness of our sins, get this, suddenly our lives have meaning. No matter how unsettled we are at the present time, no matter the disappointments or the despondency or the despair, if this is the son of David, then we know that God will deliver on his promise. He will restore one day what he has already redeemed. Now, a few minutes ago, I mentioned that in the Bible, covenants always have to do with blood. Remember me saying that? Where is the blood in 2 Samuel chapter 7? Well, don't bother looking. It's not there. There is no blood in this covenant. Why? 
God will be faithful to his promise, but the blood of bulls and goats are not sufficient to cut this covenant. The blood of this covenant comes in such a surprising, ironic, and spectacular way that none of us would have ever dreamed it up. The son of David comes, and the son of David himself is cut so that we might receive God's blessing. Do you remember? Just hours before he was placed on a cross, Jesus served wine to his disciples and said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. David entered a covenant with Yahweh, with God in 2 Samuel 7. I have a question for you as I wrap it up. Have you entered into this new covenant through faith? Charles Spurgeon said, God asks nothing of us, but that we ask everything of him. All we need is nothing. We come to him in faith and we join this new covenant people. Amen. Lord, thank you and praise you. In the name of Christ, our greater David, we say thank you and praise you. Amen.